everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Jen the Libertarian podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access. Link will be down in the show notes. So this has been another very full news week where, well, we we might actually have a race in the Democratic primary race and... It may not matter because we may all be dying of coronavirus and maybe we're pulling out of Afghanistan and nobody really knows what's going on with immigration right now. So let's go ahead and start with the South Carolina primaries, which happened on Saturday, the 29th, and Biden won. And this is not super surprising. The polls going into the South Carolina primaries showed Biden winning, but anywhere between about eight to 10 percentage points ahead of Bernie. Here is what the final tally ended up being. And this is with 99% of the precincts reporting. Joe Biden is the clear winner with 256,065 votes, which is 48.4% of the votes cast. Sanders is in second place with... 105,202 votes, which is 19.9% of the vote. Saying Biden won is kind of burying the lead. That's a complete and utter blowout. And nobody predicted Biden winning by that much. But let's go ahead and round out everybody else's totals. So In third, we had Tom Steyer with 59,893 votes, or 11.3%. Next up, we have Pete Buttigieg with 43,608 votes, or 8.2%. Behind him is Elizabeth Warren with 37,343 votes, or 7.1%. And then we have Klobuchar with 16,677, or 3.2%. And Tulsi with 6,754 votes, or 1.3%. So for those of you keeping track at home, um, yeah, Elizabeth Warren came in fifth place in South Carolina after doing horribly in every other state leading up to South Carolina. Oh boy. Um, Yeah, it's panic time for the Warren campaign. (laughs) And I mean, it's I don't think anybody expected her to do this badly. I mean, I expected her maybe in third, possibly fourth, fifth. Yikes. So now it looks like there may actually be a two-person race going into Super Tuesday. I still stand by my prediction that Bernie is going to be the presumptive nominee after Super Tuesday, but Biden may be able to sneak in and win maybe a couple of states. And as far as delegates go for South Carolina, um, they have, let's see, what is it? 54 altogether. Biden gets 36, Sanders gets 11, and nobody else gets any delegates. So obviously there's that. Yeah. um, Super Tuesday just got interesting. And I don't see anybody other than, and let's go ahead and just address this, Um, Tom Steyer dropped out of the race after South Carolina, citing his disappointing finish because he had put a lot of time and a lot of money into South Carolina. And I mean, he came in third, which is 
better than I would think anybody would have predicted, but clearly wasn't what he wanted. So he went ahead and dropped out. Um, he dropped out and Elizabeth Warren hasn't dropped out yet. I mean, I'm I'm on the Elizabeth Warren death watch at this point. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that it just it's not happening for her. And like I pointed out, this is going to make such an amazing case study one day. How somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who got so many breaks, so much just love from the press, so much time in debates, just did not perform like at all in the primaries. So we'll see what happens with her after Super Tuesday. I don't think she's going to drop out before then. I don't see anybody else dropping out before then. Although I didn't see anybody dropping out before Super Tuesday before. So maybe, I mean, at this point, I mean, it's, I'm recording this on the first. Super Tuesday is on the third. I don't think anybody dropping out between now and then is, it's not going to make a difference to anybody. I don't think. So yeah, we'll see what ends up happening on Tuesday, but Biden winning by that much in South Carolina doesn't bode well for Bernie because now, especially in Super Tuesday, you're going to start getting more of these Southern states and you're going to get more states that lean either purple or straight up red. And so you're going to see, I think those states are not going to be as supportive of Bernie as say Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada were. So yeah, God, it's such a hard one. Like I don't, I, like I said, I still think he's going to be the presumptive nominee, whether he's going to have the clear cut amount of delegates to win it outright at the convention. That is anybody's guess right now. I think he will have a plurality of delegates, whether that's going to be good enough. I mean, according to the DNC's rules, you have to have a certain amount of delegates to win the nomination. Um, A lot of people kind of crunching the numbers right now. And trying to figure out if anybody will have that number, I think it's 1,991 delegates that you need to have in order to just straight up win the convention. I I don't know. I don't see it happening. Um, California is really going to be the one to look at. Whoever wins California is going to get the nomination. I can see Bernie winning California, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's, people are preparing for the DNC convention to be a hot mess. I still don't think they will have the guts to do a brokered convention. I mean, we had the same kind of discussion back in 2016 with Donald Trump and the RNC and people talking about trying to come up with some way at the convention to yank the nomination away from Donald Trump. Ultimately, that fizzled out because nobody really had the guts to go through with it. I don't know as if Bernie, if Bernie goes in there with a plurality of delegates, I don't know if anybody in the DNC would have the guts to try to take the nomination away from him. Knowing that that is going to cause such a huge riff in your party, likely will cost you the election in November likely will cause the progressive wing of the party to leave the party and start their own party. I don't, I don't know if anybody would be willing to do it. I just, I don't see it. 
I don't see anybody having the guts to do it. And even if there was, then who would the nominee be? Like, would it be Biden? Would it be some third party? Like, who knows? I, I, just, I just, I don't see it happening. I really, really don't. So I think they are going to be in the same position that the RNC was in in 2016, where you're stuck with this candidate who is not even really a member of your party, is not representative of the establishment of your party, is this complete outsider who came in, took over your party, and became the nominee, and now they're going to have to deal with it the same way that Republicans in the GOP had to deal with Trump. Whether they'll go down the same road of going full Bernie Nista, the way the GOP has gone full-on Team MAGA, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> I just, I don't... They're, they've they put themselves in such a spot, and when I did my 2016 postmortem back in 2018, I made the point of saying that the DNC needed to avoid making the mistake that the RNC made in having 5011 people run for the nomination because this is what you get. You end up getting the the craziest son of a bitch in the room. And that's that's what you're getting with Bernie Sanders. So I just I um well, they're going to be stuck with it and I don't see any way around it. So we are going to at least get to watch Trump and Bernie screaming at each other at some point. I mean, I don't think there's been talk about there maybe not being debates in the general about Trump just refusing to debate. I don't see that happening either. It's Trump we're talking about. If he has a chance to be on TV, he's going to be on TV. Like, let's not even kid ourselves. We're going to see that debate. So we'll see what happens on Super Tuesday. I, I think they're going to get stuck with Bernie. I mean, I I don't see a way around it. But moving on from that to a story that feels like it should have been bigger than it was. And I think that the fact that it wasn't a bigger story is kind of the story. And that is that Harvey Weinstein was finally, at long last, convicted of charges. Like he went through his trial. He was found Guilty on two charges, not guilty on two charges. Um, He was found guilty on criminal sexual assault in the first degree, rape in the third degree, but not guilty on two counts of predatory sexual assault. So, kind of a split verdict, but at this point, I believe he's looking at anywhere between 5 to 20 years in prison. And this was a story for not even a full 24 hours did we discuss this. And... It's so weird to think about that because when the whole Me Too movement started and it started with the Ronan Farrow story of Harvey Weinstein and all of this stuff that everybody apparently knew for ages and ages and ages, but they finally broke it and it started this whole movement. This day was supposed to be the day. Like this was supposed to be like Christmas and New Year's and Easter and 4th of July and Mardi Gras, like all wrapped up together. Like this was supposed to be like the big deal. Like we got him, like we, we got him mission accomplished, but it just kind of fell flat. And that's not to say that there weren't people celebrating it. There were, but it was just like, it seems so subdued to me after everything. Like, and I'm wondering why, like, is it people are just worn out from what the Me Too movement has turned into? Or is it just that 
there's so much other shit going on that we can't focus on any one thing, even if the one thing was a highly anticipated thing that people waited years to see happen. I mean, I just I'm I'm kind of confused by the reaction to this story and to his being charged and convicted with sexual assault. I um I don't know. Like it just it struck me as weird. And I feel like it's something that maybe somebody better than I should unpack the the reaction to his being convicted of these charges and kind of the non-reaction as it were. Cuz it's just like I don't know. It just it struck me as so odd. Like everyone just moved on so fast. It's like wait a minute. There there was a whole like build up to this. Like this was supposed to be the thing. And for what it's worth, this was in New York. I think he still has charges pending in California. So still court cases open on Weinstein. I'm not quite sure what the status is on the California cases, like where they're at trial wise. I don't know. It's just, it's so weird to me, but I did want to go ahead and take this time to, now that we kind of have something of a conclusion to this story, to point out that the whole reason this story broke in the first place is because Ronan Farrow went through hell to break it. And that shows that there is a place for good journalism still left in this world. Although, think whatever you want about the Me Too movement and what it turned into. And I agree that it's gone to some places that it had no business going. It's gotten completely out of hand on certain levels. Like some things that are brought up now are just like, that's that's not rape. That's not sexual assault. That's just, there, there was, there's just a certain kind of bloodlust and going after people that the Me Too movement turned into. And I've discussed it before. Plenty of other people have discussed it. And maybe that is part of this. But I mean, it's just the whole reason this happened, the whole reason the Jeffrey Epstein story happened is that journalists went and did the hard work of getting it out there and telling people like, hey, this is going on. And it sparked a whole movement. And I think that there, 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 there does sometimes need to be a round of applause for journalism. So round of applause for journalism on this one. And who knows, maybe, maybe something more will come out of it reaction wise, but it's just like, everyone just moved on. Like, I can't even believe that was Monday. And like, it feels like it was a month ago that we found this out. But Moving on from that to the thing that everybody has been talking about all week, and that is the coronavirus. Now, I will go ahead and preface this by saying, I am not an expert in infectious diseases or pandemics, and odds are, neither are you either. So, yeah, people have just been, it it kind of reached critical mass this week, and there's a couple reasons why. Um, We're starting to see cases in the U.S., um, there was one case in particular that came through UC Davis that caused a lot of kind of hubbub, and that is that there was a case that was it was transferred into UC Davis from another hospital, and apparently UC Davis contacted the CDC saying that hey, we think this person has coronavirus. Can you come test them? The CDC. Excuse me, the CDC was like, well, it doesn't meet our criteria, so we're not going to test them. So this person kind of hung out in the hospital for five days having coronavirus. Actually, it turns out they did finally test him and he was, he did test positive. So you had this person hanging out for five days waiting to be tested. 
And for what it's worth, UC Davis had dealt with coronavirus cases before, so they had some kind of knowledge. So I don't know. They, they, there was kind of a little bit of CDC dropping the ball there. And then we had a Trump press conference on this that, I mean, it's a Trump press conference. I mean, what else is there to say? But the upshot of that being that Mike Pence has been put in charge of the coronavirus, I don't, effort, I suppose, for lack of a better term. I'm not entirely sure what the federal government is and should be doing about this. Um, apparently, we're going to throw billions of dollars at it. I I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, this is this has been kind of a weird week on this one because obviously the coronavirus story has been kind of hanging out for the past couple of weeks. Obviously, it's been something coming out of China and it's been showing up in various other countries. Iran's having a problem with it. Um, South Korea showed up. Japan. Um, I believe there's some cases in Italy. There were a handful of cases in Canada. We have some cases here. There's been two confirmed cases in Mexico. So yeah, it is kind of spreading around. And so now that there are cases in the United States, everybody's kind of losing their shit about what we are supposed to do about the coronavirus epidemic, which I think epidemic is a bit of a strong word right now for this. And from what I'm able to understand... This is an airborne virus, so, I mean, I don't know exactly what you can do to combat the spread of an airborne virus. Like, it's... I, and and you and there's so much conflicting information out there right now. Like, apparently there's been a run on face masks, but people are like, no, stop buying the face masks. It doesn't help you, and it just keeps the supply too low for hospitals to be able to get face masks. Some people say get a flu shot. Other people are like, no, the flu shot's not going to help you. And some people are like, okay, you just need to wash your hands and not cough and sneeze on people, which you should be doing anyway. Because first off, washing your hands is just a good idea. And second of all, don't cough and sneeze on people. That's impolite. So it's just, there's so much, so much craziness out there right now. And you've got people who are going into like full prepper mode and I've never understood prepper mode in the first place. I'm not very good at planning out things like that. But I think people are just kind of starting to lose their shit over this. And it's starting to become a situation that's starting to be a little bit too politicized for my taste. Because, I mean, this is a problem. There are people dying. And so far, it looks like the data on that is the most vulnerable populations are... Just like the flu or the cold or anything else, it is the young, the elderly, and the immunosuppressed, which is just like every other airborne virus. So healthy adults seem to be able to be able to survive it. Um, the people who are dying from it are, like I said, in those groups of either the very young, the elderly, or the immunosuppressed vaccines being worked on right now. Um, I saw a cute story. I call it a cute story just because I think it's so funny that there's a group of scientists who started a Slack channel called the, the Wuhan clan. I'll, I'll take off the Wu-Tang clan. And because this all originated in the the Chinese province of Wuhan, where they started the Slack channel and they're kind of communicating amongst themselves and making mock-ups of the virus so that they can figure out its weaknesses and figure out how to make a vaccine. And I'm just like, you know what? I think the private sector is going to handle this one. Um, 
I mean, it, there, there's already companies doing R&D on a vaccine. Like, this, this is already in the works without any government ordering anybody to do it. Like, obviously, people are like, yes, we need to make a vaccine. So uh, people are already on it. Like, nobody's waiting for somebody to be like, okay, here's $3 billion. Go make a vaccine. Like, it's it's already... It's already hand. It's already happening. It's already being taken care of, people. But of course, because governments are what they are, and our government is what it is. I'm sure we're probably going to throw a couple billion dollars at somebody for something to do a thing. And God, shit, who knows what will come of that? But yeah, apparently Pence is supposed to be in charge of that effort, which. <laughs> This is probably like the worst thing ever for Pence because it brings up his time as governor in Indiana where they had an HIV outbreak due to people sharing dirty needles. And the reason the outbreak got to the level it did was because Mike Pence was not willing to support a needle exchange program. So you had people using dirty needles. It was spreading HIV. And so, yeah, bringing up kind of a not so great chapter from Mike Pence's history and especially putting him in charge of something that's supposed to be a global pandemic. Yeah, probably not the best idea. And another thing that's starting to kind of drive panic is, especially in China, you're starting to get to a point where this is starting to affect supply chains because China has been dealing with this for, well, publicly that we know of, because again, this is China and God only knows what the actual on the ground situation is. I can tell you right now, the Chinese government is never going to admit to what actually happened. But for roughly about six weeks now, they've been trying to contain this. And so there's been a lot of factory closures. There's been a lot of people staying home and it's starting to affect supply chains. So this is a reason why people are starting to freak out. Um, this past week, we did have a very, very significant drop in the Dow Jones, um, a little over 3,500 points, including on Thursday, we had the steepest drop ever. And this is also the steepest drop overall since the financial crisis. So people are panicking about that. People are freaking out about that because this is something that's starting to affect global supply chains. It's starting to affect the global economy because if China has to shut down for any period of time, we're all kind of fucked because so many people rely on China for manufacturing. And it's getting to that point where there's starting to be a bit of a crunch because these factories have been closed for weeks. And so now it's kind of like, all right, well, when are you guys opening back up again? Like when, when is this going to get situated? So people are panicking on that level too, which there's, it's not, not really such a not understandable thing. Like I, I can totally understand people starting to get a little scared about supply chains. So there's that. And yeah, it's just people are starting to freak out about this in ways that I do not think are particularly productive. And like I said, it is starting to get politicized. Um, Republicans are accusing Democrats of hyping this to try to get at Trump. And uh, um, okay, I've not actually seen that, but sure, guys, I guess go with that line of attack. And then you have, yeah, I mean, the, the messaging coming out of the White House is so freaking confusing. It's like, okay, it's either 
nothing to worry about, or it's going to die off in April, or we got to close the border. And I'm just like, wait, what? It cannot be all of these things at the same time. Either we have it under control or we don't have it under control. Either it's going to die off in like a month or it's not. Either, I, I, just, I don't know. But what is happening is I've seen both the Trump administration and various other anti-immigration people start to make the argument that this is why we need the wall or we need to close the borders. And I'm just like, does this wall have some kind of antiviral protection that I don't know about? Because last time I checked, the wall is composed of slats and the air can still move through the slats. So if there is a problem in Mexico, it's still going to be a problem in the U.S. border states. Like a wall is not going to help and people are just... People just trying to glom onto this to make their own prepackaged political points is kind of gross. And so don't do that. Like this may, this may be an actual problem. It may not be. I'm kind of leaning towards not because I've, I lived through SARS and the bird flu and the swine flu and all the other global pandemics that have happened in my 39 years. And it's always been... Not as much as people thought it was going to be. So I have faith that we will handle this just fine. It's going to be fine. We don't need to do anything crazy. You don't need to shut down the borders. You don't need to throw money at the wall. That's not going to fix anything. We don't need to stop people from moving about the globe. Stop it. Just stop it. So I expect this to continue to be a story. I'm wondering what's going to happen next week because, I mean... I think what happens with the stock market is really going to drive a lot of the public response to this, especially coming out of the White House, because Trump is really, really, really relying on it being a very strong economy in November in order for him to win. So if this is something that starts affecting the economy too much, then you're going to start seeing a lot more chatter out of the White House about what we need to do to fix it. And people are trying to compare this as like Trump's Katrina. I'm like, no, this is not... Katrina was bad. That was a natural disaster that killed a lot of people. And I just, I don't stop it, people. Just stop. Just stop. Just deal with this in a rational manner. Don't get crazy. Don't freak out. Don't use this to make your political points. Just accept that there is a virus out there. It, and, and we're working on it. Like, it's okay. You can still leave the house. You can still go to work. Don't don't freak out. If somebody sneezes, we're going to be all right. And for the love of everything, don't discriminate against Asian people right now. Um, I think the fact that this is coming out of China is fueling a bit of xenophobia, shall we say? Um, I've seen stories of rideshare drivers refusing to let Asian people in their cars. Apparently, the Chinatown in San Francisco is now a ghost town because apparently nobody wants to go there right now because of this. And I'm just like, people, stop. Stop it. Just stop being weird and dumb. Just stop being weird and dumb. And and don't, like, just, oh my God. Like, this is going to get so ridiculous before it gets any better. But yeah, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. But Moving on from things that we can't really control to things that maybe we are starting to exert a little bit of more control over. There is a deal in place between the U.S. and the Taliban and Afghanistan, kind of, I don't know, but we'll get to that. Um, 
there is a deal in place between the U.S. and the Taliban to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, provided that the Taliban meets certain benchmarks and starts kind of self-policing to make sure that there's no U.S. attacks from either the Taliban or any other groups that originate out of Afghanistan, that basically the, the Taliban promises to be good boys and girls and not do the terrorist attacks anymore. And I say, I, I question the Afghanistan involvement here because here's here's how this deal is kind of structured. You've got three parties. You've got the U.S., you've got the Taliban, and you've got Afghanistan. Now, little bit of backstory. The Taliban does not acknowledge the Afghani government right now as legitimate. They view them as a puppet government. They do not talk to them. They do not acknowledge them. So you've got two people in this who are hostile to each other. And so there's kind of two aspects to this deal. There is the deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. And then we are supposed to be getting to a deal between the Taliban and the Afghani government. Part of what this whole deal sets up is starting on March 10th, there's supposed to be talks between the Taliban and the Afghani government as to how to reconcile the two and so that everybody can kind of live together in peace and harmony. But part of the agreement is that Afghanistan will release 5,000 Taliban prisoners and the Taliban will release 1,000 Afghani prisoners. This was negotiated between the U.S. and the Taliban. Apparently, nobody ran this past Afghanistan because the Afghani president came out and said, yeah, no, we did not agree to that. We're not doing that. And in fact, the U.S. has no standing to tell you that we are doing that. So we're already kind of reaching the first snag in this deal. And the prisoner release was supposed to be a big part of kind of establishing trust between the Taliban and the Afghani government to go into those March 10th peace talks. And if that doesn't happen, if the prisoner release doesn't happen, I don't know where that leaves that part of the agreement. From what I understand, whether the prisoner release happens or not does not affect the U.S.'s deal with the Taliban as far as troop withdrawal. And the timeline for the troop withdrawal is supposed to be that within the next three months, we are supposed to withdraw 8,600 troops with full pullout happening within 14 months. So allegedly, allegedly, we are leaving Afghanistan. That is great news. If it happens, I really hope it happens. Don't get me wrong. I have been very vocal about the fact that we need to be out of Afghanistan like 15 years ago. So I really hope this happens. Like I really, I, this needs to happen. And it's something that Trump ran on. It's something that he has been trying to do. So I really hope this works out. But we're already kind of starting from a place where uh, I don't know how exactly this is going to work. Because Afghanistan... I feel bad for Afghanistan. The U.S. seems to view Afghanistan as part of our personal fiefdom. And this is just another example of the U.S. making deals involving Afghanistan, but not actually asking Afghanistan if they're cool with the deal. Like, I mean, I, who who does that? 
Who just says that a country is going to release 5,000 prisoners without running it past the country to make sure they're cool with releasing 5,000 prisoners? Like, who does that? And, I mean, diplomacy in this region is so hard. And it's just, I don't know why everybody fucks it up. But you're already fucking it up. Like, why didn't you just ask them if they were cool with it? Probably because you knew Afghanistan would say no. And maybe this is a thing where you thought that begging forgiveness was easier than asking permission. But still, you don't do that. Like, okay, so now what? Like, I I don't know where this leaves this deal, at least as far as between the Taliban and the Afghani government. If there isn't a deal between those two, how does this actually impact what the U.S. does? Because Trump has kind of done like a one foot in, one foot out where it's like, okay, well, we're going to withdraw these troops. But if the Taliban tries anything funny, then we're going to go back in. So I, oh my God, this is going to be a mess. And I, I hate that. I hate that for this. I want the Afghanistan war to be over. Finally, please, dear God, just get our fucking troops out of there. But Oh, this is going to be messy. I, I I really hope it works, though. I do. I genuinely do. And even if that means that Trump gets a Nobel Prize or what the fuck ever, I don't care. I just want the troops done. I want them out. I want, I want this theater wrapped up. I want us out of the Middle East, period. But we can start with Afghanistan because that's really the last place we needed to be in the first place. So here's to hoping. Fingers crossed. But it's already kind of not starting off on the best foot. So anyway, I want to move on from that to some immigration news. Um, Two really, really, really good pieces of news came out this week and kind of really late in the week. Um, On Friday, Ninth Circuit ruled that the Migrant Protection Protocol is a violation of U.S. law and they have issued what some people call a nationwide injunction. Technically, it is not a nationwide injunction because it only applies to four states. So as it stands right now, migrant protection protocol remain in Mexico is illegal per the Ninth Circuit. How this is playing out in practice, Um, you still have CPB officials refusing to let people pass through the ports of entry. Um, There's been reports that Mexico has deployed their Marines to stop people from being able to enter. I I mean, given the fact that this came down on a Friday afternoon, it's kind of caused a lot of chaos. And so in this coming week, I'm sure we'll start to get a little more clarity on how this is supposed to work um, per DHS. Their, their memorandum to all of the border agencies is that Ninth Circuit has found this to be illegal. You have to stop enforcing it, like, now. People are still enforcing it, though. So it's going to be messy, but at least as it stands right now, and I'm sure the Trump administration will appeal this. I'm sure it will go to the Supreme Court. But as it stands right now, the Migrant Protection Protocol does not exist. Remain in Mexico no longer exists, legally speaking. Practically speaking, I'm sure somebody will figure out a way to still keep people in Mexico. But legally speaking, everybody who comes to a port of entry or basically anybody who complies with the INA's kind of pathway to applying for asylum is allowed to legally apply for asylum. And that is that either you go to a port of entry 
and you present yourself and you're on U.S. soil and you say, I want to apply for asylum and you get put into the asylum program. Or if you do hop the border, you have up to a year to go find a officer and turn yourself in basically and say that you want to apply for asylum. Like I said, I don't know how this is going to work, but there's there's that. So the second thing that came out, and this actually came out today on Sunday, which is wild in the first place. Um, courts have ruled that Ken Cuccinelli, who has held various and assorted immigration-related offices, because nobody actually, like, gets really technically, like, hired the way you're supposed to get hired for things in, in DHS, which is supposed to be Congress is supposed to, like, confirm you, but we apparently don't do that anymore. Well, the courts finally kind of put their foot down on this fuckery and said that when Cuccinelli was put as acting head of Customs and Immigration Services, it was done in an unconstitutional way and that any policies that were implemented under his administration as acting head of USCIS are void. This would include the public charge rule. Like I said, this is coming down today. So in the next week, we will probably find out what this is going to look like in practice. But this is a huge deal because so much of what goes on in immigration right now is point blank illegal. And one of the things is the way that People are being picked to head the various agencies. Like I said, it's, there's supposed to be a Senate confirmation process. You're supposed to nominate someone and then you go before Senate. You do the confirmation process. We don't do that anymore. And that's that's illegal on its face. Like, this is ridiculous. This whole acting, acting this and acting that, that's not, no. And it, it's about time the judicial branch started putting their foot down and saying, no, you can't do that. That's not how this works constitutionally. You have to follow the rules. So what that's going to mean for other people who are acting deputies or acting secretaries in both DHS and outside of DHS, I don't know. It certainly does open up a Pandora's box, though. I will say that because if you can say that Cuccinelli's position, the way he got it, was unconstitutional, then I'm sure you could say that about, oh, I don't know, Mick Mulvaney. <laughs> you could probably say that about Chad Wolf, who is right now the acting secretary of DHS. I think he is now. I, I forget what Cuccinelli is now. They gave him some kind of dumbass role, but there's just, there's nobody confirmed anywhere in ICE, in CIS, in CPB, <laughs> and it's just like it just changes out and Trump just puts in whoever the fuck he wants to put in and nobody gets run by Congress and it's it's cool that that maybe there's some precedent for somebody finally saying like no and as far as rendering everything that happened under Cuccinelli void like I said I'll, I'll be interested to see how this plays out but public charge would fall underneath that that was a policy that was implemented or, well, at least proposed and initially passed. It's about, well, no, it just started being implemented because there was a court case that had held it up and that just got overturned. But that that's a Cuccinelli joint. 
So does that mean that public charge is no longer valid? I would be very interested to see how that's going to be interpreted. To me, that's how I'm interpreting it. Yeah, there's going to be a lot going on with immigration next week between those two court cases. So yeah, probably be revisiting this next week on the weekly roundup. But at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.